Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Good morning, everyone. Now, Jane told me I only have 20 minutes, and I have a whole lot of stuff to cover, so we're going to dive right in. So today we're going to tell a story. It's probably a story that most of you are familiar with, maybe know it by heart, depending upon how long you've been in church. But it's the story of the healing of the, the lame man in Acts 3. So I'm going to read through it, and then together we're going to kind of pick it apart and see what God has for us from this particular scripture. So, Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms from those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed to you, for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So it's a pretty cool story, right? We have a, a guy who's lame from birth, and he's sitting there doing his thing, begging, and Peter and John walk by, and it's, it almost seems arbitrary, almost. Peter turns to him and says, 
hey, John, look at this guy. Why don't we just heal him? And I don't think that's quite how the story actually goes. Although, we're really, really tempted to kind of end the passage right there. Sorry, I'm going to kick the chair if I don't move it. Um, really ended, tempted to end the passage there and just talk about the amazing miracle that happened. But I'm a really curious person. I can't help but like dig in when I don't understand something. So in a city with probably hundreds of lame and deformed people, the city of Jerusalem at this time had thousands of people. And if you look at statistics-wise, modern medicine excluded here, uh, there's probably a good chance that there was a lot of people with, with birth defects, there were probably a lot of people who had been maimed or wounded in rebellions and work accidents, all sorts of stuff. So there's a good chance that there's plenty of people to heal here anyway. In the next chapter, we learn um, when he's giving, the layman is giving testimony, that he is nearly 40 years old. So this guy has been lame from birth almost 40 years, been sitting at the temple for a long time, and this is the first time someone's tried to heal him. And here's the craziest part to me. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the temple not too long ago. So it is totally possible, and this is pure speculation, but totally possible that Jesus saw this man and chose not to heal him. And then I'm standing there going, what? Why did this happen? And the more I dig into it, the more I realize that this was a very carefully orchestrated sequence of events meant to prove an eternal point to the man, to the disciples, and by extension to the Israelites and to us. So that's kind of where we're going to dig in. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing that Peter takes the time to give a sermon, because otherwise this would be lost to the annals of history. So we're going to kind of work through this piece by piece. I'm going to spend a little bit of time setting up the background, and then we're going to really going to dig into what the parallels are and why it's so significant that this man was, held, was healed right here, right now, in this, in this part of Scripture and also in this part of, of history. So the, the main passage breaks down into two sections. We have the first ten verses that deal with the healing, basically the action stage, and then we have the rest of the chapter that deals with Peter's message um, and we're going to see how that, that blends into uh, an example of how God removes boundaries and how he uses his people. So the first couple of verses we have, Peter and John go to the temple at the ninth hour. Okay? First question, why on earth do we care about what time of day it was? Okay, I want to give you guys something to look up. Uh, in Matthew 27, Jesus dies at a specific hour of the day. Who's got a really quick uh, fingers and can find that for me? In, in Matthew 27, when Jesus says, it is finished, and gives up his spirit, about what time of the day was it? Anybody? About three o'clock, which is the ninth hour. Okay? Seemingly insignificant, maybe a coincidence, but we're going to come back to it. Okay? So what is 3 p.m.? Well, 3 p.m. is kind of a busy time at the temple. Uh, it's the time between the afternoon sacrifices and the evening sacrifices in the Judaic custom. So we have uh, kind of a, the middle of the day sacrifices, a time of prayer, and then sacrifices again. And Peter and John are coming to the temple here to pray during this, this we say hour of prayer, but it's probably more a couple of hours of prayer before the evening sacrifices were given. So that's kind of our time. And again, keep in mind that this is when Jesus said it is finished. Additionally, we're going to talk a little bit about where they were. So they were at the temple, specifically outside the beautiful gate. Now, the historian Joseph, Josephus 
tells us a little bit about what Herod's temple looked like back in the day. Okay? Um, and if you are really curious, I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's pretty lengthy, uh, but Exodus 25 through 27 has all of the exacting measurements that were used to build the tabernacle. The basics behind the tabernacle and then how the, the temple was constructed later, um, and there's a whole history behind the, the temple as well. It was destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, renovated, and then renovated again, and then destroyed again. Um, so it's, it's had a pretty lengthy history of tearing down and rebuilding. Um, but we're in kind of the, the last fully built temple that the Israelites had. This was known as Herod's temple. The basic structure behind all of the Israelite worship places where there was kind of an outer courtyard, and then there was an inner courtyard. That inner courtyard contained the altar. It contained, uh, they called it the laver, which is basically where they washed their hands before they would sacrifice. They would have a table for actually performing the sacrifices. Then set behind the altar, they would have uh, the holy place. The holy place was a place where anyone who was consecrated and who was an Israelite male could enter. Okay? It was the place where God could be met. It was the place where the priests had uh, the bread, and every week they would replenish the bread. They would eat the bread on the, the Sabbath and then replenish the bread. But it was basically where, where God could be seen. Okay? This was the place where Moses would walk into, uh, talk with God, and then walk out with his face glowing. Okay, so this is where God's presence was. And then behind that, there was a curtain. And that curtain was not like we would think of curtain. It wasn't a blind. It, it wasn't a curtain. It was a veil. And the veil was like four inches thick and like 30 feet wide. It was a massive piece of material. Okay? And that was to keep God's presence away from the Israelites. Not because God did not want to dwell with his people, but because no man can look upon God and live. Once a year... Once a year, the high priest was allowed to go in there, make atonement for himself, his family, and then the Israelites. And that was where God could really be seen. That was where God's presence dwelled on earth. So the basics carry on into our passage here with, with Herod's temple. Now, Herod's temple was constructed slightly differently because Herod was involved. Um, so there was uh, kind of like a porch where he could walk along the... Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, an atrium, I guess. There was also another porch that they called Solomon's Porch. And a lot of this from the archaeology and from the descriptions that we have, we don't truly know how it's all laid out, but there's basically two places where this could have taken place. Um, there are two gates. One, at the very entrance to the temple courtyard, to where they'd enter the, uh, the court of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus overturned money tables and threw people out. Okay, This is kind of like anyone can go into the court of Gentiles. Then between them, uh, we have the first option for what could be the beautiful gate. And this is where you would enter what was known as the women's court. This is basically where only the Israelites could go. It was called the women's court because this is where the women would stop and they would worship here. From there, there's another gate, um, and history tells us it's called the Nicanor, date, Nicanor Gate. Um, and this was elaborately furnished, which is why a lot of historians believe that this could be the beautiful gate. The application is not going to make a difference when we get there, but just to kind of describe how it looked. This was basically the same as the inner courtyard of the tabernacle. So inside of this gate would be the altar, would be the lavier, and then inside of that was actually the building, the temple proper, uh, which would have the holy place and then the most holy place inside there. Okay? 
So that's kind of our setup. And where this man is is important. He is sitting outside the beautiful gate. Outside. Okay? So the question is, why? Why is he outside the beautiful gate? If the money changers are inside, okay, and if the rest of the Israelites are inside beyond the Nicanor gate, why is he sitting outside? And again, the application doesn't really make a difference um, which gate he's behind. Here's what we, have, we know about uh, lame people, disabled people, in Israelite custom. So we know that this man who is lame from birth, okay, he's 40 years old, he's been carried to the temple to beg over and over and over again. And the significance here culturally is that due to Jewish law, a deformed man was not allowed to offer bread in the temple. He was disallowed. Uh, God being holy was unable to have any form of defect, any form of blemish before him, to the point where we know that even sacrifices had to be perfect in order to be given to God. So this means that he was excluded from the temple portion where all of the other Israelite men could go. Now, specifically, that regulation comes from Leviticus 21, um, and I'm going to flip there just really quick to give you guys the background. This is specifically having to do with regulations for the priests, but by extension, it would apply to any man who wanted to enter the actual temple, into the, the holy place of the temple. I'm going to make sure my references are right here. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of laws in Leviticus, and it works better if you're actually in the book of Leviticus and not Deuteronomy. <laughs> All right. So this is, this is in Leviticus 21, verses 17. And God is giving the regulations to basically temple worship, priestly duties, and how the, the tabernacle is to be constructed. So in Leviticus 21, 17, he says, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer food to his God. So, okay, this man is culturally unable to enter the temple. So he's outside the temple. Why? Because people who go to church are pretty pious. So he tends to get money there, but he can't go inside. He cannot encounter God. So there's a spiritual significance as well, okay, in that the man's physical deformation parallels the condition of mankind as a whole. Not only is he culturally, spiritually unable to enter God's presence, he can't walk. What does that mean? He means he can't get himself into God's presence even if he wanted to. And the people who are with him were dumping him off at the gate. They weren't bringing him inside the temple. They were dumping him off at the gate. So not only is he unclean, unable to stand before a righteous God, but physically he's unable to get himself into the temple as well. So this is a pretty big, significant thing. When Peter says to this man, he says, all right, look at me. So what does that mean? Okay, so again, I can't help but ask what these things mean. And this, it reminds me of a fun story. So my brother, I'm pretty sure, was the one who sent it to me. And I'm sure it's a, a blog post that made the rounds through Facebook and things like that. However, uh, it's a story of a man who says, I taught my daughter to say behold rather than look. So we go to the store, and she wants candy. She says, behold, Dad, there's some candy. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if I just said, behold, whatever, okay? 
This is the word that's used here. The word here is not look. The word is behold. So Peter's actually saying to this man, behold us. So it sounds funny, especially in the English language. It sounds funny. But what he's saying is, look at who we are. And I got to ask, what do you think this man saw? Did he see two blue-collar fishermen? And like, oh, well, maybe they're willing to give me something. Maybe they got some fish. I don't know. Um, maybe he thought, man, these guys are, these guys are awesome. They're going to give me something awesome. And they recognize that it's, it's no fun being poor, so they're going to share what they've got. I can't help but ask these questions. The truth is we have no idea. The scripture tells us that he looks at them and expects to, see, expects to get something. So this reminds me also of my daughter's at the stage where she is exploring everything. And one of her favorite things to do is she can't say the word behold yet, but I'm pretty sure she would use it a lot if she could. Because she will grab your hand, drag you over to something, put your hand on it and go, this? <laughs> So that's exactly what, what Peter's trying to, to show this man right here. He said, look at us, see us. Now why? Why does he say that? Why does it matter that this man is giving him his attention? And it's important because this man is outside God's presence physically. He's outside God's presence spiritually. He's outside God's presence culturally. And Peter's going to do something amazing here. He says to the man, I don't possess silver and gold. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. It's a pretty big, bold statement. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. So what's this application? What does that mean to us? First, he says, behold, here I am. And secondly, he says, walk. Okay, okay. The significance of this passage right here is who tells him to walk? Peter does, but Peter makes a very bold statement, not in his own authority. Okay? He says, in the name of, in the name of, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. So, in the name of, what does that mean? It means that Peter understood that while he has access to God's power and he could help this man, he could not do it himself. It implies that Peter is not doing the miracle out of his own strength, but he's acting as an emissary of God's and by extension, in this case, of Jesus' power. So it's, he's making it obvious to the man, look at me, I am not God. But God can heal you. <clears throat> that's important. Okay? That's, that's really important. Especially when we understand what the name means here. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Who is Jesus Christ the Nazarene? We're going to dive into some names here in just a little bit. But hold that, hold that thought. That name is important. And so he sees him by the right hand, he yanks him up, and we have the most incredible description of what happens. So it is well thought and probably true that the author of the book of Acts was Luke, and Luke is referenced by Paul as being a physician. This is the only place in scripture where we have these particular words in Greek that says his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And in Greek, the phraseology is very anatomically correct, very specific, and basically portrays what we would think about either setting a broken bone or resetting a dislocated soldier. Basically, the bones popped into place, which is pretty amazing. And the guy knows right away that something amazing has happened because he doesn't stand up. He doesn't crawl up. He jumps up. He leaps up. 
okay? And it's very significant that he doesn't jump up and like run around waving his hands in the air. He doesn't jump up, thank Peter and John, and walk away. Um, he doesn't go and try and get a job right away. His first reaction is to do something that he has never been able to do before. He walks with Peter and John into the presence of God. So the thing I want you to see right here is that he didn't walk or run away, but he immediately entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so like is normal for any society that has a lot of people, people saw it. Like, wow, wow, this guy, I, I, maybe he has a twin. Nope, nope, it's that guy. I recognize him. <clears throat> Check out his feet. He's walking. He's talking. He's praising God. He's leaping. This is amazing. And again, this ends the narrative stage here. And this is like, this is, this is amazing. But what's even more important is the why. So all this stuff happens. And yes, we can agree that it's, it's phenomenal. And the narrative is fantastic. But the parallels in it are the most important part. And when we dig into what Peter has to say, that's when we, we really start seeing the message that God had for his people here. So this is in verse 11, and it says, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. So this is one of those porches in the outer courtyards, um, full of amazement. But Peter said, saw this, he replied to the people and said, Men of Israel... Why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our power or our piety we had made him walk? So he's saying basically the same thing that he said to the man before he healed him. He's saying the same thing. Look at me. Am I a God? Absolutely not. I am a poor fisherman from Galilee. Okay? And then why would you look at me or why would you think that I could do this? And then he launches into his sermon. And this is, this is where everything starts to come together. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, and a fact to which we are witnesses. See the contrast here? We have death, we have life. We have forgiveness, the presence of God. We have rejection, okay? We have a dichotomy that's been separating people from God for ages. We have death versus life. We have a murderer versus the prince of life. And who did we choose? We chose the murderer. By extension, who are we? Because we put the prince of death to, life, to death. We as well are murderers, okay? So this is a big statement. He's not saying, well, you know, Pilate signed the order, Jesus. No, he's saying, you disown the prince of life. You put the prince of life to death. But guess what? It's not the end of the story. God raised him from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So Peter, again, is making a very bold statement here. He's saying, okay, look at this. John and I, we saw a raised Jesus Christ. If God can raise people from the dead, what trivium is a healing? Like, why does this matter to you guys? Shouldn't you be focusing on the fact that dead people are walking around? <laughs> okay? It's also important here that this is all set up. 
we would think that this passage is entirely about Peter. But the fact is, Peter's not alone. Peter has John with him. John's kind of sitting there soaking it all in. John's going to write a gospel. John's going to write Revelation. John's going to write a bunch of stuff later referring to his experiences and further defining how God works through all this stuff. But there's an important point to be made. He says, we are witnesses. Now, under Judaic law, the law of Moses, it's very important for there to be two witnesses to have reliable testimony. So this could have easily happened when Peter walks in, Peter heals the guy, he goes in the temple with the man, the man gives testimony, Peter gives testimony, but there is a much further impact here because John is here as well. He may seem like a bit player in this story, but the fact that he's there and can give the same testimony that Peter is giving is extremely important. In Deuteronomy 19, we learn that it is incredibly important for there to be two witnesses for anything to be taken seriously. So that's a big deal. So... Kind of as a, this isn't the, the main point of the passage, but I just kind of to lay it in there sometimes. Some of us are not fantastic at witnessing. I place myself in that category. But with our lives, with our communities, we are part of that witness. We are part of that, that testimony uh, where God can test, or God can give testimony about us being his children. People can see our actions. People can hear people that have the ability to speak and come beside them and say, yes, this is exactly what I've experienced, and our testimony is just as important. So we continue on, and Peter, after blasting him with this statement, saying, look, you guys are just as bad as the guy that you released. He goes on and says, and on the basis of faith in his name, so he's speaking about Jesus and the layman here, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Shakespeare once said, uh, in one of his famous plays, he has one of his characters say, what's in a name? Okay? Um, I would quote the whole thing, but because I'm up here on the spot and I didn't write it down, I can't give it all to you. Um, <laughs> but basically, Juliet's out on the portico, and she says to Romeo, or really she's talking to herself, but... What's in a name? What I say about you doesn't change anything about who you really are. And so she says, what's in a name? This rhetorical question. Well, a Hebrew would deny that entirely and say, what's in a name? What's in a name is everything. A name is incredibly important in Jewish customs. Okay? When you name something, you conjure up in your mind a lot of things about it. For example, if I say it's cold in here because the AC is blasting frigid air, most of you would probably agree. Some of you would not, okay? But if I say, I'm going to walk out into the sunshine, every single one of you at some point has an idea of yellow, probably, of warmth, of light. So even though all I've done is name sunlight, you have this idea in your head about what it is, and it encompasses the whole being of what sunlight means to you. This is the same thing that's being said about Jesus here. So I told you we'd come back to Jesus' name. He says, it is in the name of Jesus. Before, he used that phrase to say, it's not my power, it's someone else's. In this case, he's saying, it's in the name of Jesus because I'm going to name what Jesus is, who Jesus is. Why is that important? It's because this encompasses what Jesus' mission on earth was meant to be. Uh, in the Greek, the word name basically means the proper name for a person or thing encompassing an understanding of all its attributes. So who is Jesus? 
Who is Jesus? We already found from this passage, he's the holy and righteous one. He's the prince of life. And then we have the name Jesus Christ itself. So Jesus is a translation from the word Yeshua, which is a translation or a kind of a modification of the word Joshua. But it means Yahweh saves. This is who Jesus is. Jesus' name means that God saves. That's pretty incredible. But Jesus has a wealth of other names as well. And one of the most important ones is in Matthew 1, uh, verses 21 through 23, which is where the angel is giving the name of Jesus to Joseph. And he says, you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's, let's take this back just a second and kind of put the story back together, because I know I've been throwing a bunch of information at you. So we've got this temple that has a holy place where the man has never been able to go. It has a most holy place. Not too long ago, what happened to the most holy place? Again, same time of day, what happened? The veil was torn from top to bottom, so we know it was not by man but by God. This four-inch thick curtain was ripped in half, exposing the most holy place of God to everyone. What's the same thing that's happening here? Jesus, God with us, is granting the same man, through the power of his name, entrance into God's presence. That's a profoundly, profoundly important statement to the, the people of Israel, and by extension, us. This veil is no longer important. Peter and John know this. This lame man has seen it firsthand. The Israelites around are starting to understand, or at least you would hope that it's starting to sink into most of them, that look, this man has been healed and has been granted access to God's presence. The same way that Jesus dying has ripped the veil and allowed us access into the most holy place of God. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Is that not incredible? But Peter's got more to say. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He's basically saying here, look, you didn't know, but you know now. Okay? You have seen it happen twice now. Different circumstances, but you have seen twice now how Jesus brings people into the presence of God. How Jesus is the dwelling of God on earth. <clears throat> Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Basically, turn away from what you're doing, turn back to the right way, and live in that. So here's the strong parallel. Here's what was really important to take from the action stage into the sermon stage of this passage. Just as when Jesus died, it tore the temple veil. So the healing in Jesus' name to open the temple to the lame man. Jesus is the door that he claimed to be in John 10, where he says, I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Jesus has become the temple veil in a way. The book of Hebrews has a whole lot more to say about Jesus and the veil and being our high priest and our interceder. Um, but here, Jesus is reiterating through Peter that is through my power that God is accessed. I am the door. And both of these instances show how God is using Jesus to bring his once crippled people, they've been deformed by sin, back into his presence so that he can dwell with them forever. Which again is, is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And then he launches into this, this last uh, 
this last stage of his sermon, to end everything out. Um, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So he's reiterating one more time exactly what he just said. Jesus died toward the veil. God's presence is accessible. This lame man, by culture, by custom, by physical deformity, was unable to enter God's presence. Jesus has done away with that. So, what about those strong parallels? He talks about prophets, and I'm going to be super quick on this one, but I would invite any single one of you to read Ezekiel 37. There's a really popular song on the radio that says, we call out to dry bones, come alive. This is, this is that passage. Um, and I'm going to read a very, very short excerpt from that passage. Okay? Basically, God tells Ezekiel to go into this valley. Ezekiel says there's bones everywhere. God says, speak to these bones, and they'll come together. So he speaks to the bones, they come together. God says, breathe life into these uh, as I read life, and preach to them. Tell them what I'm doing. And what's the reason? What is the reason for Ezekiel to do this? It's the same message as it is here in Acts. So the last part of Ezekiel 37, uh, beginning in verse 26, says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, I will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Is that not incredible? The Old Testament is telling the exact same story that Peter and John told to the lame man, and then the lame man and Peter and John are telling to the people of Israel who are gathered at the temple. It's the same story, that God wants us in his presence, and he will do whatever it takes to overcome those boundaries. There is no curtain that can keep us from God's presence. Okay, we learned that in Matthew 27. There is no disease, no deformity, no crippling. There is nothing. We learn that from this passage. Even death cannot keep us from our God. We learn that in Ezekiel, where these dry bones come to life just to hear the message that God wants to be with them. Is that not amazing? So here's where it all comes down. So we have this incredible message. We have this incredible story. So over the past few months, we've heard a bunch of sermons covering giftings, We've heard about the gospel. What is the gospel? What's the power of the gospel? Now, this is our challenge. This is our challenge to combine the gifting that God's given us with the power of his gospel to expose a hurting and dying world to his life-altering presence. So let me leave you with a question. Who's the lame man in your life? Who desperately needs you to reach out and through God's power raise him up to where he can encounter God? All right, so while all of you ponder that, I'm just, no, I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right, would you all pray with me? Father in heaven, it's incredible the stories that you tell. You have a way of combining messages with physical manifestations, a way of combining in your word a story that will impact our hearts, a message that will impact our minds, and an application that will 
hopefully force us out to go and do likewise. I just pray, Lord, that we could continue in the example of Peter and John, that we could understand what it is you want from us, that we could understand where it is that you're leading us, that we could understand that we are emissaries of power to a world that is dying, a world that is hurting, a world that is crippled and maimed and broken. I just pray, Lord, that we would have the boldness to step out like Peter and John did, that we'd have the discernment to see these moments and where we can take something where we don't have enough to do it on our own. We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We don't have the patience. But we know that, that in your power, you have everything we need and then more. I just pray, Lord, that we would use those situations to expose people to you, that we would use those situations just like Peter and John did to show people the power of your gospel, the power of your word, and the life-altering um, differences that come from just existing in your presence. And I pray, Lord, that as we go out here uh, into our weeks, into our normal routines, that we wouldn't just blow off our responsibilities, but that we would truly be, that we would truly be your children, walking so close to Jesus that we're covered in his dust, just like the disciples. I pray for this church, and I pray that you would truly use us to do these great things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.